time. Really excited about David Mickelson sharing from the Word. You're going to have a good, good meal right now. So open your heart, open your ears, pay attention. God's speaking this morning. God bless us. There we go. Thank you. I picked out this pulpit on Amazon, but I wish I would have gotten a lighter one. You might have noticed that we cut out a piece of cardboard and put it in that light just for my forehead so there's less of a glare. So you can appreciate that. You don't need to wear your sunglasses on Sunday morning anymore. So you're welcome. All right, I think I've heard Bill Johnson tell this joke four times now. So if any of you ever watch Bill Johnson, then you'll, have, you'll be familiar with this. But we've only told it here at Newsom like two times, so we're doing pretty well. So a pastor had dinner at the home of a couple in his church. And after he left, the wife said to the husband, I think the pastor stole one of our spoons. So this bothered her for a whole year. So the next year, they invited the pastor over for dinner again. And she couldn't resist. She wasn't going to say anything, but she couldn't help it. She said, did you steal one of our spoons? The pastor said, no, I hid the spoon in your Bible. (laughs) Burn. Okay, these jokes get dumber as they go. A small church was raising funds for a new piano. On Sunday, the pastor said, whoever gives the most today for the offering can pick out three hymns. So they pass the offering plate around, and the pastor sees a $100 bill in the plate. And he said, look, we have a winner. Whoever gave the $100 bill, please come forward, and you can select three hymns. So a 90-year-old lady slowly got up, walked to the front, and pointed her finger into the pews and said, I'll choose him, him, and him. (laughs) I like that. Not really very appropriate, but it's okay. All right. Stupidest joke saved for last. Joe goes to church and starts praying hard. The pastor comes up and says, what's wrong, Joe? Joe says, I want you to pray for my hearing. The pastor puts his hands on Joe's ears and prays hard for 10 minutes. Finally, with a red, exhausted face, the pastor says, so how's your hearing, Joe? And Joe says, I don't know. It's not till next Monday. Okay. All right. Groan. All right. Poor Brian had to hear that twice. That's why he's sleeping right now. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, nobody likes to be asked, what are you doing here? It's not a polite question, is it? If somebody came up to you before church today and said, what are you doing here? You might be tempted not to like that person. (laughs) Well, Virginia wouldn't be tempted. She loves everybody no matter what they do. But the rest of us would. Sorry, Virginia. (laughs) She's laughing. Okay. I have to call people out. That's the danger of sitting too close to the front. So I have to tell you, a few weeks back, we had my sister Charity in town from Santa Barbara and my sister Sarah from England, and I got drafted one evening, requested, drafted, however you look at it, to go hang out with uh, two of my nephews for a few hours. So I brought my computer over there, and we were going to play some video games. And I pulled up at this house they were staying at. So they were staying at the, uh, the house of a longtime family friend of ours. And this neighbor lady is like 30 feet away across the street, but she just locks eyes with me and stares at me right in my face. Just stares. Doesn't look away. And I have vague memories from a long time ago of women looking at me kind of like that when 
young 20s, but it's been so long that I was like, what's happening right now? This is weird. But it wasn't really even like that. It was more like one of these, what are you doing in my neighborhood kind of stares. And she was, you know, older generation, but I was going to get in a staring contest with her. I was like, I'm not going to let this lady stare me down. But I have to confess, she won. I stood there for long enough, and pretty soon I felt really stupid standing on the sidewalk staring. So I kind of shrugged, you win, lady, and walked into the house. And about a minute later, there's a knock on the door. I thought, oh my gosh, is this this lady? But it turned out to be her husband. And, no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> but he says, well, I didn't recognize your car. And I thought that was pretty rude. But I tried to put a smile on my face, and I said, okay, can I help you? And he looks at me like, didn't you just hear what I said? And he said, I know that the people who own this house are having some house guests over right now. And you could see my brother-in-law. He was right in the back. And he goes, but I don't know who you are. And at this point, I'm kind of getting a little irked. And I don't know about you, but when someone gets under my skin, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. So I, get, I was starting to get nervous about what's, what am I going to do here? Not about what he's going to do. I was nervous about what I was going to do. But I just said, okay, can I help you? <laughs> this is kind of bad. I probably should have been nicer. He wanted me to explain what I was doing in his neighborhood, right? And it was obvious to me, but I wasn't going to help him along the way. I was going to make him ask. So I said, can I help you? And luckily at that point, my brother-in-law, Tim, came over and said, this is David. He's my brother-in-law. We invited him over here. It's all fine. And the guy still wouldn't leave. It took like 30 seconds, 30 more seconds to get rid of him. But it all ended well, thankfully. But I felt like, you know, that's pretty rude to ask somebody, what are you doing here? And so today I have a question for you this morning. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, you guys know me too well. What are you doing here? I'm not asking what you're doing here, here. I know you came for the donuts and coffee. That's why people come to New Song. What are you doing here in this life? Another way of looking at it, why would an all-knowing, all-loving God not create us in heaven already? Why put us in this place where there's bee stings, there's dog bites, and there's neighbors who ask annoying questions? Why not put us in a place where there's no death, no pain, and no tempter, and thus there's no sin? Have you ever wondered, what are we doing here? The Bible gives us some intriguing insight. I want to start with Acts 17, 26. Paul is talking in Athens, the capital of Greece, and he says this, From one man God made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth. I like how it says one man. I'm pretty sure Eve has something to do with it too, but that's another sermon. So this is what he did. He made everyone from one man and one woman so that we would inhabit the whole earth. And he determines the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. There's something beautiful about that. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You know, in heaven, there's no seeking God because he's right there. He's visibly present. God will be to heaven what the sun is now, according to Revelation. He will be our light. We will speak with him face to face. Anybody looking forward to that? You know, that's not just going to be talking, too. We'll be able to 
You can play rock, paper, scissors with him if you want to. Although I don't recommend it. He'll just win. <laughs> you know, we'll see him in a way that we don't yet experience him. There will be no need to seek him because we'll be with him and it will be impossible to lose him. But there's something about this life that is very important to God. That God may be found. He may be approached. He may be known but only for those who seek him above all the distractions of this life. Consider this for a moment. The cross was only necessary because of our time in this life. Have you thought about that? If God had created us in heaven from the get-go, where there's no tempter, and the presence of God is so thick that sin is impossible, we would never have needed a savior. So it's our time here in this life which rendered the cross necessary. God knew that when he put us here. He knew that putting us here meant that his son would have to suffer what? The fists, the whips, the nails, the spear. He knew that his son would have to suffer those if he put us here in this life and not start us out in heaven. He paid a high price for us to be here in this life. So what was he thinking? So scripture, as I said, gives us some intriguing answers. So how about this one from Romans 11.32? This is one of those verses that we read and we think, what? And then we keep reading. At least I do. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Did you ever think that maybe Paul wrote Romans with a little bit of a prank in mind to have the church shaking their heads and scratching their heads for the next 2,000 years? And he was kind of chuckling when he wrote it. I mean, Romans has some amazing verses, don't get me wrong. But some of these things are like, what are you talking about, Paul? Does God really bind us over to disobedience? Does God want us to sin? That can't be right. No, God never wants us to sin. That's the exact opposite. He wants us to be close to him, and sin is separation from God. So, of course, that can't be what it means. But God has certainly created us with a nature which is capable of sin. And he's placed us in a world full of temptations and tempters. There's human tempters. There's demonic tempters. If you don't think there are spiritual forces of darkness in this world leading people astray, turn on your evening news. The tempter is real. So in other words, God created us in such a way and put us in such a place where we would inevitably sin. And all have sinned. What is God doing? What is the method to this seeming madness? Here's what I'm getting at. For those of us who are in Christ, God appears to have arranged reality in such a way where it's like a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose scenario, where God always wins and the devil always loses. You see, if we sin and repent, then God gets to show us what? Mercy. And so we see a side of his goodness that we never would have if we had never sinned. As far as we know, no angel has ever experienced the merciful forgiveness of of sins. No angel has ever experienced grace. They know God's power. They know his love. But have they ever needed to repent? But we have. We have a unique experience of receiving mercy and knowing God not just as our creator and provider, but as our savior. When we stumble and get back up and turn to him with grass stains on our knees and tears in our eyes, he rushes to us like a parent rushing to a child, to show us mercy. Do you know God rushes to show you mercy? He's on the edge of his seat to draw close to you 
waiting for you to say yes to him. On the other hand, if we resist sin, choosing faith, choosing God, in defiance of that snarling tempter who so wants to lead you astray, we glorify God in a special way. We glorify God in a way which doesn't take place in heaven where there's no tempter. It's easy to be good in heaven. But when we choose God now in the face of the enemy, there's a special glory that we bring to the Lord. And, we, and God has set us up for reward based on that. Here's an image of Washington crossing the Delaware. You've probably seen this. There he is. This painter wasn't there and reimagined it later. Do you think that's really how it happened? Have you ever seen anybody try to stand up in a boat crossing an icy river on Christmas morning? I'd be like, sit down. What are you doing? Probably in real life he was huddled up with blankets around him like a smart person, like a sane person. But that's how the painter imagined it. And they're trying to show the general's glory. Washington is remembered with great honor for what he did that day. So where did the glory come from on that day? Is it because of his bold stance, standing up in the boat as he crossed the river? I don't think so. What if they had crossed the river that morning just because they heard there were pancakes and eggs on the other side? Would that bring glory? German pancakes. Ah, yes. Very good, Dave. So the glory comes from the fact that there, were, there was a troop of, of hired German mercenaries on the other side waiting for them. And the British had hired these German mercenaries. And Washington crossed on Christmas morning. He knew that they would be all drunk, and they were. And they captured them without hardly a fight. And he's remembered as, as that, that was a brilliant move on his part. The glory came from the fact that there was an enemy on that day. And so we see God is using the enemy's attacks to glorify himself and to set us up for eternal rewards that, we, that would not be possible if we never had to fight any battles. The time may come, and I believe it will come, when the things that you're most tempted to complain about today will be the very things that you are the most grateful for and you thank the Lord for later on. So I hope no one gets from that that sin brings glory to God, so you might as well just leap into sin. I'm not saying that at all. Has anyone ever leapt foolishly headfirst into something that you shouldn't have? Maybe one or two people. I'll raise my hand. I saw like five or six, okay. five or six honest people in the room. Okay, good. <laughs> so back in my subbing days, I took a job one morning labeled on the computer. It said, high school math. And I thought, oh, I can do high school math. I went through high school, believe it or not. And I did pretty good in algebra. I can do this. So I got there and I looked at the lesson plan and it said, this is an honors calculus class. Please demonstrate this problem from the front and answer any of their questions. I looked down at the problem. That's not math. That's Egyptian hieroglyphics. I didn't sign up for a foreign language class today. What happened to this train leaves from here and this train leaves from there and where do they meet? Or Susie bought two apples and Ricky bought three flamingos and who regretted it the most? That's what I was ready for. So these 10 kids trooped in. They quietly, so quietly, took their seats, not talking, attentive. Oh, honor students are the worst sometimes. I just needed a little time. And they just sat down and looked up at me like he's about to unfold his brilliant knowledge of calculus to us. And I thought to myself, the one time that they're all paying attention and I have nothing to say, what am I going to do? So I think God or somebody gave me a flash of brilliance. And I said, 
well, your teacher tells me that you're all very bright students, an honors class. Which one of you wants to come up front and demonstrate this problem for us? <laughs> Ten hands go up. Wow. Honor students, right? God bless them. And got through the day that way. So, don't leap before you look. What are you doing here? Here, of all places in this fallen world, why are you here now? Here, we face daily trials, tests, tribulations, temptations, and troubles that God did not send, but that he allowed. Why did he allow those things? He allowed them because he knows that when you put your faith in him through every storm, you experience his goodness, you experience his love, and you experience his power in ways you never would have in a perfect world. You rely on him and receive from him in ways that the sinless angels of heaven have never experienced. In ways that bring him glory and set you up for eternal rewards. So, perfection is coming. Paradise is coming. But in the here and now, we can actually rejoice that we have a chance to put our faith in him when it's hard. It's not going to be hard forever. Now is the time to do it. This is one reason I like to repeat to Christians that you should never feel that life is humdrum, mundane, dull, that nothing big is happening, and that you don't matter. He literally died on a cross to give you the chance to put your faith in him in this life when it's hard. Through this or that difficulty, in defiance of your enemy, he died to make that possible for you. And it's, it's important to him. He paid a high price for you to have this life and this experience. Did you know that you're being watched in the heavenly realms? Do you know that people are watching? Or people? I don't know what they're called. This is one of the ideas that I find bizarre and really interesting. The Bible speaks of cosmic observers who are watching and learning lessons about God through you. Have you ever read those verses? If you never have, this is an exciting moment for you. I'm going to share some crazy verses with you from the Bible. Ephesians 3.10 God's intent was that now through the church, that's the people of God, that's you, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold on now. Who's watching? <laughs> rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms who are apparently learning lessons about God's manifold wisdom through us. Is that crazy? <laughs> no, okay. Good. So, are these angels or are these demonic forces? It doesn't say clearly, but in a few chapters, Ephesians 6, we hear more about the demonic side of this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, in that case, there's evil forces. But, again, it, there's more to this. In 1 Peter 1.12, it says, angels long to look into these things. It says, they long to look into the, the prophecies and the unfolding of the gospel. I guess I'll just read this here. This is 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you. That's the gospel. By those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So when you long for something, you're desperate for it. You're eager for it. You can't wait for it. 
there's angelic beings longing to look into what's going on here and what God is doing in your life and in the world. It's a fascinating idea. Some weird stuff, though, to me. It makes me feel like a bit of a cosmic guinea pig that these ancient spirits, good and bad, are learning important lessons about God by watching us. What lessons are they learning? I don't know. Do I look like a heavenly being? Don't say yes, anybody. I don't know what they're learning. I would hazard a guess that when the spiritual forces of evil see played out in our lives that no scheme, no plan, no weapon can succeed against the Lord, they shudder. And when the angels see that God is triumphing through his church, despite our weak human frailty, they rejoice. That's not a guess. The Bible says they rejoice. We know that. All right, but enough about whoever's watching. I just thought that was interesting. But what's the practical application of all this to you? What are you doing here? Tell me what this means. This is from Genesis 3.24. It's right after Adam and Eve sinned. It says, After he, God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What happened here? Paradise lost? Immortality lost? Face-to-face fellowship with the Father? Gone. Okay. So what about this? Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's the fall. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And finally this from Luke 12.32. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see the contrast there. Adam and Eve lost a kingdom when they rebelled. Jesus Christ won back a kingdom when he obeyed. And he gives that kingdom to us. In fact, I really like this. I know we're not supposed to talk about the devil too much. We're supposed to focus on Jesus. But I just want to say this. That Jesus seized the kingdom from the devil right when the devil thought he won everything. Have you heard the phrase a self-own? The kids say that. Oh, that was a self-own. You own somebody by you try to throw a basketball at their face and hit them in the face. Oh, he owned him. But if you, if you throw it and you miss and it hits the wall and b- bounces back and hits you in the face, that was a self-own. So the, devil's, the devil got self-owned there. He tried to throw a basketball at Jesus' face and it bounced back and hit himself right in the face. Okay. So he had Jesus killed only to find that he lost everything. And so now what's going on here? Jesus says that what's going on here is like a field that has wheat growing and has weeds growing, and they're growing right next to each other. Two kingdoms right next to each other, side by side. We have the kingdom that's been going on since the fall. The same things still prevail here, death, pain, misery. And then we have the new kingdom, the kingdom Jesus won back for us and has given us, where we have fellowship with the Father restored. Face-to-face fellowship with the Father restored, and we have eternal life restored. We got back what we lost in the garden. And these two kingdoms are side by side, but they're utterly opposed to each other. There's no mixing. There's no gray area. So what's the practical application for us? Well, have you read what happened when Moses, through through God's power, turned his staff into a snake in front of Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh had his magicians, through satanic power, turn their staffs into... Snakes, do you remember what happened? Moses' staff ate the other 
Moses' snake ate the other two snakes. So the two kingdoms were side by side, but one prevails over the other. And that's what's supposed to happen for us. This is what God is doing through you right now. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16, 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus overcoming the world, he wasn't saying, oh, you've been through a difficulty, so sorry, there, there, Uh, just buck up, you're tough, at least you still have your two front teeth. He was saying, I have set you up to triumph over that trouble. I have empowered you to completely overcome that trouble. You no longer live according to the principles of this fallen world. The kingdom of heaven, in short, is our re-entry into the Garden of Eden. That means death gets nothing that belongs to you. That means the serpent gets nothing that belongs to you. This fallen world can take nothing from you. So if you want to know what that looks like in practice, Jesus showed the way. It looks like touching a leper. And instead of you getting leprosy, the leper gets healed. He said, you will do greater things than this. That's how we're supposed to live. One kingdom triumphs over another. It looks like an endless supply of bread and fish when just a minute before, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, were so hungry, there was danger they would faint. One kingdom triumphs over another. This is my favorite one. It looks like your boat is about to sink in a furious squall, and so you go in the back of the boat and take a nap. One kingdom triumphs over another. Why do you kick your feet up and relax during a squall when everyone else around you is panicking? Because you're close personal friends with the storm's boss. Do you have a storm in your life? Do you know that storm has a boss? Someone it answers to with trembling? I recommend establishing a close friendship with the boss of that storm. He's on the edge of his seat, ready to go when you are. A long time ago now, it might be 10 years, I would guess, our church was going through some financial difficulty. The budget was tight. There were salaries to pay. Giving was down. And this is a side of being a pastor that lots of people aren't aware of. Many people think being a pastor means sitting at your desk, studying the Bible, and looking up Greek roots to words. I think a lot of pastors wish that was what being a pastor was. But there's a practical side of it. If you want to have the lights on, you have to pay it. You have to write a check. And... It's, it can be, you can be tempted to be stressed. So my dad announced to the church in the face of this financial straits that he was going to start giving 10% of the church's income to missions. And I, I had told him I thought that was a good idea, but privately I thought he was crazy. So what happened? Well, for one reason or another, it's hard to point to any one thing, but the financial straits just worked themselves out, even though we were giving 10% more. That's the kingdom. One kingdom triumphs over another. So for a short time here on this life, before we enter paradise, we're in a land where there is trouble. And why are we here? We're here so that we can partner with God to turn those troubles into blessings. If anybody ever comes to your door and knocks on your door and says, I don't recognize your car, what are you doing here? You can say, I'm here to partner with God to turn troubles into blessings. God allowed those troubles. He didn't cause them, but he allowed them because he knows the solution is found in your faith and faith comes through relationship. 
At the end of the day, that's what he's always after. Relationship with you. A relationship where you bring nothing to the table but the faith he gave you. And he brings everything else. Most of all, he brings himself, which is the desire of your heart. God wants to bring you through that relationship to a place in this life where no matter what your troubles, you have perfect peace all the time. Perfect peace all the time is one of those things people say. I'm not just bandying phrases around. He wants you to have perfect peace all the time. It's a real thing. He knows you. He wants that for you. Think about that. Don't let that just bounce off you. He wants you to be able to just chill and relax. Take a nap. No matter how much people around you are panicking. You weren't made to live with fear or anxiety or depression. In fact, just like we shouldn't lift with our backs, our backs weren't made to lift heavy lifting, you weren't made to handle stress. In fact, it's terrible for your body. He doesn't want you to feel that. You're not, he's supposed to handle that. He can handle it. So, you know, we often think that our emotions stem from our troubles. Oh, I'm having such a bad day. Things are going so wrong. I'm in such a bad mood. Or, everything's going so, so great today. I'm in such a good mood. You know that our emotions stem from our beliefs about what's going on? You never have to be ashamed of having emotions. God gave you emotions. He created emotions. And they're actually a good barometer of how we're doing in our faith relationship with the Lord. Emotions gauge whether we're looking at his face or whether we're looking at the storm. (laughs) Emotions gauge whether we're looking at his face or whether we're looking at the storm. You know, if he was willing to endure the cross so that you could be here now in this life and learn in the here and now to trust him in your troubles and overcome your troubles through faith, I think it might be important. You don't endure the cross for something that's trivial. It matters to him. Even if no one else is watching, God is watching. It matters to him. He paid a high price so that you could have that chance. The other day on Saturday night, we sang a fun little song, I'll Fly Away. Everybody was clapping and kind of swaying. And it's a good, it's a good catchy tune. But I was looking at some of the lyrics later, and I felt like they could use some theological help. So, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison has flown. Are Christians in prison? Just a few more weary days and then. They're singing about going to heaven. So, it's sort of like, oh, this life is so terrible, but someday I'll go to heaven. You know, too many Christians live this way. My friends, fly away with him now. In terms of your faith journey, you don't have to wait to die to fly away with the Lord. In terms of your faith journey, in terms of your relationship, soar with him now. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be overcoming and thriving now by keeping your eyes on Jesus through every storm. He paid a high price to give us that chance. Let's do it. Amen? Thank you. fly away now. Amen. Let's stand up. Thank you, David. Anybody hear from God today? Yeah, there's God's voice on that word.
Yeah. We're going to invite anybody that would like to uh, come up for prayer. We have a we have a culture, an environment, an atmosphere of expectation for the miraculous. We uh, we see a lot of miracles, and we're excited to what God might want to do today. He's always in a good mood towards us, and He loves to to see impossible situations turned around. So if you'd like prayer for something, let it, let God have a chance. Don't let that verse be true of you. You have not because you ask not. Body, soul, or spirit need healing, need financial help, miracle. You need some kind of breakthrough, wisdom for something. Let's just see what God will do as we stand in agreement with in prayer. If, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't started your life in Christ, or if you need a refresh, a reset, this is a time for that. Come up and just humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So be humble and, and, and ask for help, okay? Put your hand on your heart. Let's, let's bless you. Thank you for your church, Jesus. Thank you that we are, we have, uh, we're part of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven in blood. Thank you, God, for our, our family. We belong to a family, God, your family. Thank you for your love for us, Dad. Thank you, Big Brother Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you all, we always have your 100% attention working our salvation out with fear and trembling because it's God who works in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You're doing a good thing in each of us, God. We bless you for it. We ask for your favor on each of us in all that we do and answered prayer above and beyond what we ask or even imagine. Now the, the love of God the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Great. Have a great week.